And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Beautiful, I need thee every hour. Um, That is a perspective of, you know, our Christianity, our union with Christ that we need to be aware of, that we really do need Him every hour. Um, a little, it, it's, it's a different perspective. The verses that we're studying that we started a couple weeks ago and continued next week and are, are finishing up today, and that is Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. In these verses, we're getting a look from eternity past to eternity future concerning us as believers and what God does for us. Now, uh, get your Bibles turned to Romans chapter 8. And while you're turning there, flipping there, or clicking there as, as Tyler is on his uh, little iPad. Oh, he's got his Bible there too. Oh, that's his notes. He's writing notes. All right. One up me there, buddy. Good job. <laughs> Romans 8. If you would, just stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word, if you are able. Romans 8, beginning in verse... I'm going to start at verse 28 because it is part and parcel of this passage here. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Father, we come before You again acknowledging our need of uh, primarily Your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom, to give us discernment, to give us understanding of Paul's words here, which are just really profound to look at what You have done on our behalf. Father, help us to be ever be grateful. Help us to live lives that are worthy of this calling that You have placed on our lives. Father, uh, we want to honor You. We want to glorify You this morning. So we ask that You do it for Your name's sake. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I said, Tyler kicked off this section a couple of weeks ago, a couple of Sundays ago, with verse 23, uh, 28. All things work together for good. God has a good purpose for all things that happen to believers. Now, verses 29 and 30, they offer support for verse 28, uh, giving us the big picture, as it were, as to why we can trust that, in fact, all things do indeed work out for our good. Now, the context of this whole section uh, that led up to this is suffering. Now, verse 28 that I just read, all the way through the end of the chapter, through verse 39, uh, it focuses on our assurance of our salvation. It's this assurance that will help us get through our times of suffering. Now, Paul begins this discussion of assurance by giving us what's known as the golden chain of salvation. It consists of five things, five links that God in His sovereignty does for us concerning salvation. 
Now, last Sunday night, we had a rather quick business meeting. And so we ended up discussing the sermon for, I don't know, 35, 40 minutes. And, and someone said, it seemed that I was saying last Sunday morning that we don't have to do anything to be saved, that God does it all. Don't we have to have faith? Don't we have to repent? Absolutely. But those things aren't mentioned in our text. Uh, my point last week and this week is that the five links of that chain that are mentioned in our text are all carried out by God. Um, these are exclusively the purposeful action of God. Last week we looked at the first two links, for, foreknowledge and predestination. Foreknowledge means that salvation has its origin in the mind or the eternal counsels of God, uh, not in man. It focuses our attention on the distinguishing love of God, according to which some people are elected to be conformed to the character, character of His Son, Jesus Christ. Predestination means that God has determined the specific destiny of those He has previously decided should be saved and should be made like Jesus. Now, we looked at both of those in pretty good detail last week. This week, we're considering calling, justification, and glorification. Now, there's something that I want you to notice in our text. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Did you notice that nobody is lost in the process? The same can be said for the rest of the links in the chain. It's the same group from start to finish. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. The chain is unbroken. I said it last week and I'll say it again. Salvation is of the Lord. So let's begin with called. That's number one. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Now this word is the next link in this great golden chain of salvation by which God reaches down from eternity into time. We talked a little bit about that last week. Uh, and He does that to save sinners. The point of this word is that those whom God calls not only hear His call, they actually respond to it by believing on Jesus and committing their lives to Him. Now, it's obvious from Scripture that there are two different types of calls. There is the call of men and women that is merely external. It's, it's, it's really what I do in some form nearly every Sunday. It's an external, general, and in itself, ineffective, ineffective, I said, uh, for salvation. There's also a call that is internal. It is specific, it is effectual, and it is regenerating. Now that first call, that is an open invitation to all people to repent of their sins and turn to Jesus. It was spoken by Jesus Himself on many occasions. For example, He said in Matthew eleven uh, twenty eight, "...Come to Me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest." It's a general call. In Matthew 16, 24, He said, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. He said in John seven thirty seven, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. Now that, that last invitation, 
that was spoken in Jerusalem on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. People from many lands, many nationalities were assembled. They were Jew, there were Jews from every part of Palestine, as well as many regions of the Roman Empire. There were also Gentiles there, some who had become Jewish proselytes, and others, no doubt, who were merely interested bystanders. When Jesus, and later Peter, and Paul, and like I said, even I today, or you, when we um, call such people to faith... That call is universal. It was and it is for everybody. Anyone who wishes may come to Jesus Christ and be saved. Today, that same call flows from every true Christian pulpit and from all who bear witness to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in every land, regardless of the language. Now, the problem with this external, universal An ineffectual call is that left to themselves, no one will actually respond to it. Paul told the Corinthians that the message of the cross, the gospel, the message of the cross is foolishness to Gentiles. And it is a stumbling block to the Jews. People hear the gospel and they may even understand it up to a point. But the God who issues the invitation is not someone that they want to have anything to do with, so they turn away. Have you ever heard of Scripps News? Anybody ever heard of Scripps News? A few hands. Tyler's hand would be going up. I guarantee you he's heard of Scripps News. I did this for him and he left. Their motto is, here's their motto, give light, it's it's a news agency, give light and the people will find their own way. The assumption is that people make foolish mistakes and bad decisions because they simply don't know the right way. Show them the right way and they will follow it. That's what the motto is saying. But that's not the way the Bible describes our condition spiritually. When Jesus was in the world, He said of Himself, I am the light of the world. The light was shining, but the men of His day didn't respond to Jesus by walking in the right path. Instead, they hated the light. They tried to put it out. They eventually crucified the lighthouse. This is how people still respond to that universal invitation. It's why Jesus said, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. It's also why he said in John 6.65, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Now, this is where the second kind of call comes in. The kind of call that is actually spoken of in Romans 8.30. Now, unlike the first call, and, 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 which is external, universal, and in itself ineffective, this second call is internal. It, it is specific, and it is entirely effective. In other words, it effectively saves those and all those to whom it is spoken. You've heard me mention John Murray in his book, uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. I encourage you to get it. You can get it on Amazon. It's, It's probably 150 pages. It's a small book, but it is a theological powerhouse. 
uh, written around 1950 or so. He was one of the foremost uh, conservative theologians of the 20th century. And here's what he says. He says that in the New Testament, the terms for calling, which is the word we're on, we're called calling, when used with reference to salvation... Are almost, unif- uh, are almost uniformly applied not to the universal call of the gospel, but to the call that ushers men into a state of salvation and is therefore effectual. There is scarcely an instant where the terms are used to designate the indiscriminate overture of grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ." End quote. Now, here are some examples of this effectual call. Romans 1, 6 and 7. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Called to be saints. He's talking to the church at Rome. In Romans eleven twenty nine, he says, For God's gifts and His call are irrevocable. 1 Corinthians 1, 9. God, who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. Ephesians 4.1, Paul says, As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Again, talking to the church. And 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul says, But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. 2 Peter 1.10, Peter says, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. Now in these texts and many others, including our text in, in verse 30, the call of God is one that effectively saves those to whom it is addressed. Putting the above text together that I just read, it's a call that unites us to Christ. It brings us into fellowship with Him. It sets before us a holy life in which we will be sure to walk if we have truly been called. Putting the context, putting the call into the context of Romans 8, where Paul is at in this section, it's the point at which eternal foreknowledge and predestination of God pass over into time, okay, into, into the way that we experience life, into time, and start the process by which the individual is drawn from sin to faith in Christ, is justified through that faith, and is then kept in Christ until his or her final glorification. So we have two calls, one external and ineffective, and one internal and effective. What is it that makes the internal call, the one referred to in verses 28 and 30, so effective? It's not difficult. (laughs) It's effective because it is the call of God Himself. It issues from His mouth. And all that issues from the mouth of God accomplishes precisely that for which He sends it. This is exactly what Isaiah 55.11 teaches us. It records God as saying, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. I actually like the King James there, void. 
It shall not return to me void, empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's words are always effective. They accomplish their purpose. What we are dealing with in verse 30 is a call to sinners to salvation rather than, in, than another purpose. So we need to ask you exactly how the effective call of God works in achieving this goal. Now, the chief thing the effective call of God in salvation does is to cause the regeneration or the rebirth, the being born again of the one that is called. Do you remember Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again? Even to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. That is, God calls the individual with a specific an effective call, and the call itself produces new spiritual life in the one who hears it on the basis of which he or she is then enabled to respond to the gospel. Now, one of the best examples in all of Scripture is the story of Lazarus in John 11. Do you remember Lazarus had been dead for four days? Jesus boldly walks up to the tomb, and what does He say? Yo, Lazarus, come forth. And He does. Clearly, the call of Jesus created life in that formerly dead corpse. And as a result, Lazarus responded to Jesus by emerging from the tomb. He obeyed the voice of Jesus. This is what happens when God calls us to salvation. He creates spiritual life in the one called and the proof of that spiritual life is that we actually respond to Him. Now, how do we respond? We respond by turning from sin. What do we call that? Repentance. And by believing in Jesus Christ. In other words, the call of God produces life in the sinner. Just as the Word of God brought the heavens and the earth into existence there at the very beginning of creation. Now, the evidence of the, that new spiritual life in a person is repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus. So the call of God, it is effectual. It is powerful. Number two is justified. Those whom He called, He also justified. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on justification because you may not have been here, but uh, six or eight months ago we went through chapter 4 which is all about justification. It's actually by justifica about justification by faith alone. Do you remember who Paul's guinea pig is in that, in, that, in that section? It's Abraham. Remember? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This was long before uh, Abraham was ever circumcised and uh, 350, 350 years or something before the law was ever given. Well, let me ask this. Well, we are justified by faith. That's the point of chapter 4. What exactly is justification? Okay, Justification is a legal declaration made by God towards us as not guilty. You can just picture Him as a judge in the dock, in, in, up on His bench. And you're there in the docket. And He takes His hammer and He hits it and He says, not guilty. 
We are declared righteous. That's what justification is. I want to make four statements about justification. Number one, the source of our justification is the grace of God. It's clear that no one can be declared righteous on their own. Paul has already told us in chapter 3, there is none righteous. No, not one. It's possible only if God does the work for us, which is what grace means, since we do not deserve God's working on our behalf. Paul often emphasizes this by adding the word free or freely to grace. Now, realistically, that's a little redundant because grace by definition is free, but he calls it free grace or the grace that you have freely received. It's a little redundant, but it's strong writing. Well, number two, the ground of our justification is, in other words, how are we legally justified? It's the work of Christ. We saw this in Romans 3.25 when we went over that portion of Scripture and talked about propitiation. Big word. It's because this work has been done by Jesus that God has been able to justify us, sinners, and do it justly. Now, John Stott, he says, when God justifies sinners, he's not, he's not declaring bad people to be good or saying that they are not sinners after all. He is pronouncing them legally righteous, free from any liability to the broken law because, here's the reason, His Son has borne the penalty of their law-breaking. In other words, we are justified by His blood. End quote. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, y'all know this is one of my favorite verses, Paul says, He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. That what? That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Jesus took the penalty of our sin on Himself so that we might be declared not guilty. Number three, the means of our justification is faith. Faith is the channel by which justification becomes ours. Now, this is not mentioned in the chain of God's saving actions in 28 through 30, but it is the fruit of God's effectual call and its result, uh, regeneration. When we are born again, we show it by repenting of our sin and turning to Jesus Christ in faith, believing that He is our Savior. So we, we were justified by faith. Well, lastly, the effect of our justification is union with Christ. Now, this idea was developed fully five, and in an earlier section of chapter 8, the union is the ground of the benefits of our salvation. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why is there no condemnation? Because we have been Justified, we have been declared not guilty. Well, lastly, the third thing, and the last thing in this chain is glorified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, we've already talked about glory way back in chapter 5, verse 2. It's there that Paul speaks of Christians as rejoicing in the hope of glory. Well, what does this mean? Well, it means that we know that one day we will be glorified and that we rejoice in this certainty. That is, we know that we will be like Jesus. He is God. 
And therefore, He is like God in all respects, and we will be like Jesus. Now, we're not going to become God, no. But we will become like Him in His communicable attributes, the things that He communicates with us, things like love, joy, peace, mercy, wisdom, faithfulness, grace, goodness, self-control, and a ton of other such things. In that day, sin will no longer trouble us. And we will enjoy the complete fullness and eternal favor of God's presence. When does just our glorification take place? There is a sense in which much of it takes place when we die. Because then we will be freed from sin, which currently has taken up <laughs> residence in our bodies. When we die, we'll be much more like Christ. John wrote in his first epistle, We shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Now John Murray is right when he insists that in the fullest sense, glorification awaits the return of Jesus Christ, His second coming, and the resurrection of our bodies. In fact, the text in 1 John, which I just quoted, it says this. It doesn't simply say, we shall be like Him. It says, when He appears we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Murray states, glorification is associated and bound up with the coming of Christ in glory. So indispensable is the coming of the Lord to the hope of glory that glorification for the believer no longer has meaning without the manifestation of Christ's glory. Glorification is glorification with Christ. Remove the latter... And we have robbed the believers of the one thing that enables them to look forward to this event with confidence. End quote. We've already seen just a little earlier in chapter 8, verses 19 through 22, that glorification of the believer is actually associated with the renewal of all of creation. So when we think of glorification, it's no narrow perspective that we are thinking about, it's a renewed cosmos. It's new heavens. It's a new earth that we must think of, think of as the context of the believers of our glory to come. It's a cosmos delivered from all the consequences of sin in which there will be no more curse. Righteousness will have complete reign and undisturbed habitation. Now, the most striking feature of Paul's mention of glorification in verse 30 is that it is in the past or aorist tense in the Greek. Since glorification clearly is future from our perspective, it's not there yet, this requires a little explanation. Some commentators think that here Paul departs from strict accuracy or, or logic in order to stress the absolute certainty of this future event. That is, it is so assured that it can now be spoken of as to already have happened, even though it's still in our future. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this, the apostles, the apostles, the apostles' argument is that as we know more certainly that we have been called and justified, we can be equally certain of our glorification. Nothing can prevent it because it is part of God's purpose for us. Likewise, Leon Morris, he says, so certain is it that it can be spoken of as already accomplished. It is the plan of God, and that means that it is as good as here. 
Other scholars, scholars call this use of the past tense an anticipatory or a prophetic aorist. Uh, since God has decreed it, it will happen and can be considered as having happened. Well, did you notice that the chain moves back into eternity, right? You got forward foreknowledge, predestination, woo, call, justification, and now glorification, all right? We've seen that it begins in eternity and then dips down into time. The flow of the verses would be most satisfying if the chain simply moved back into God's timeless eternity once again. Well, guess what? From our perspective, that's exactly what happens. That's the case. But from God's perspective, it's a done deal. If you have been foreknown, then you've also been predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Well, I've got a whole thing on sanctification, but since we're running over, we're gonna, why is sanctification not in there? If you want to know, ask me in the service. I'll tell you about it. God's foreknowledge of us is followed by His predestination of us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. His predestination of us is followed by our being um, called to saving faith. Our, our calling is followed after our subsequent faith, by justification. Our justification is followed by our glorification. Therefore, it is as certain that one day we will be with Jesus and be completely like Jesus as it is that God exists and that His long-range plan is realistic, it's effective, and it is also unchangeable. This is God's great plan. So let's get on with our part in it and be thankful that His grace has drawn us in. Let's pray. Father, thank You again just for the revelation of Yourself. The, we've looked at the revelation of this plan that You have had from eternity past in which You foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified those whom You would save. And so we give You praise and glory for that. Thank you for the call that has been placed on our life. We thank you for that justification that we are now in right standing with you, having been declared not guilty. We look forward to our glorification when we will no longer have to deal with sin. You are a good and gracious God. Thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're just going to have a, a very quick um, invitation, give you a chance to respond. Uh, maybe, maybe what I've talked about this morning is just you know, foreign to you, you don't understand it all. Here, here's the gospel in just a really good nutshell. Uh, we're all created by God. We were created good. Adam and Eve, they sinned. That sin has passed down to man. Now you're a sinner. <laughs> I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. That sin has separated us from God. There's only one thing that can close that gap. There's nothing that you can do to close that gap except trust Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. He bore the guilt of your sin on that cross so that simply by trusting in Him, we call that faith, trusting in Him, asking God to forgive you of your sins, He will make you right. He will justify you and declare you not guilty. If you need God, you need to come through His Son, Jesus Christ. You can do that today. If you're a believer, I hope that you just got a little bit more of this assurance that Paul is trying to give to this church at Rome some 2,000 years ago, looking at what God has done from us from beginning to end. We sang the song, we need thee every hour. That's in this moment, and that is so true. 
But when life gets you down, remember what God has done from before you were ever a sparkle in your parents' eyes to long after you have died and left this earth. If you're His child, you're in good, solid hands. Therefore, all things work together for good to those who, who love God and are called according to His purpose. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.